Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, he went inside. He saw and believed. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were, to where they were staying. You can be seated. Hey, good morning. morning. Happy Easter to you. He is risen. Amen? Amen? There's an old tradition that Christians have done for a long time. I don't know who invented it, and I don't care. It's just cool. Somebody says he is risen, and everybody else says he is risen indeed. You want to practice it? Okay, you don't want to, so moving on. You want to practice it? He is risen. Yeah, see, good. See, you did very good. You didn't have enough confidence in yourself the first time. Let's try it one more time. You ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Good, thank you. Okay, so in a minute I'm going to preach from John chapter 20, but let me say one thing first, and this is just free and bonus, okay? Uh, Whether you've been a Christian for all of your life, and like our brother uh, Troy Almond is celebrating his 66th baptismal anniversary today, isn't that kind of cool? Yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's neat. Um, there's maybe somebody else here afterwards will want to come tell me, you know, hey, I've been in even a little longer than that. I don't know, but that's, you've been in Christ a long time. That's good. Maybe today is the first time in a long time you've come into church, okay? So we just want to say welcome and thank you for honoring the risen Lord Jesus. And before I say anything else from this sermon, I just want to tell you this one thing, and this might be the one takeaway you have today. The rest of the message, if it doesn't land for you, okay, that's the Holy Spirit's business. But this one thing I'm pretty sure can land with each of us. What is Christianity really all about? Why do Christians come together and worship? Why in a world that is so scientific, and we know some of these stories have to come by faith, these events, these moments in human history have to be believed with some evidence but with a lot of faith, why would Christians continue to come and to worship week in and week out and give of their money and give of their time and in some places in the world suffer abuse and even death for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ like some Christians were martyred this morning on Easter Sunday in other nations when bombs killed them in their churches? Why would people continue to do this in a world that says it's unreasonable It's not scientific because there was a guy named Jesus who told his friends, kill me and in three days I will be raised from the dead. And on the third day he showed up. And I don't care whatever other kind of belief system or foundation you could offer me for life. 
If you put a guy in front of me that predicts his own murder to the detail, predicts his own death, his own burial, the kind of tomb he'll be in, and his own resurrection, and he follows through, I'm going to follow that guy. Amen, church? And so, this is why we say he is risen. He's risen indeed. It is the core of our faith. It is the fundamental event, a historical event, but also an event that teaches us how to live. And so today, we're going to start a three-part series called Empty. And today, we're going to look at Jesus being raised from the dead. Empty. The tomb is empty. And I would love to invite you back over the next two weeks as we look at some implications of what happens in our life because the tomb is empty. Next week, we're going to talk about empty promises. And the week after that, we'll talk about empty threats. There are some things that we have been told over and over that might draw us in, promises that draw us in to a kind of life that's far from God. There are some things we've been told to be afraid of that may push us away, threats that we've been told, and so we'll be pushed away from God. These are lies from the enemy. And the implication of this moment in history when Jesus was raised from the dead is we don't have to fear what they fear. We are not threatened and we're not allured by the things that many people are allured by. Our focus is on the risen Lord Jesus. And so I hope you'll come back for those two messages. But today we're going to look at empty tomb. And I'm going to present this message in three parts this morning. So on the back of your bulletins you have the text of scripture broken into three parts and you might want to follow along as I read through these scriptures for the third time now this morning and let them settle into your mind and your heart and you may want to fill in a couple of notes as you go so I'm going to give you three simple points about the empty tomb today this empty tomb is a disturbing event this is going to be point one disturbing event the empty tomb is a human event. And the empty tomb is a reorienting event. We're going to look at disturbing event, human event, and reorienting event. Are you ready to get into the text of Scripture with me? Let's go ahead and read from Scripture. The empty tomb is a disturbing event. Look at these words again. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, while it was still dark, most people don't like to get up while it's still dark. 172 of you got up while it was dark this morning to go to sunrise service. It was a beautiful time. Most people don't like to get up while it's still dark. I certainly don't most of the time. Here's Mary, a woman We'll learn from the other Gospels, accompanied by only a couple of other women. They leave the safety of the city walls at a time in history that it's not very safe to be a woman outside the walls in the dark. And on a weekend in particular, when their leader has been executed by Jewish leaders and their names have been taken down, they've been seen at the foot of the cross. Everyone knows who his followers are. They are keeping tabs on Mary Magdalene. And while it is still dark, she goes to the tomb. Why? She's disturbed. She's troubled. 
She watched her friend suffer a cruel execution on Friday. It crushed her. The cross will crush you. It will crush you because of what Jesus suffered for your sin. The cross crushes us because of the suffering he endured. All human suffering finds its consolation in Friday, the day that Jesus is whipped and beaten and he drags his cross out and he's hung there by nails to slowly die of asphyxiation while his muscles cramp, his body dehydrates. Mary witnessed this. She was disturbed within her. She probably wants to anoint the body of Jesus that they weren't able to finish on Friday because it was a very sacred Jewish holiday and a Sabbath besides that. And they weren't allowed to do work after sundown, so she wants to finish anointing his body. But maybe there is even another more simple reason. She probably can't sleep. She's probably awake at 2 a.m., Wondering, waiting. All day Saturday, the disciples have been wondering and waiting. They've been in sorrow and in grief. Their friend didn't just die, he was murdered brutally. And they have to sit still at home on a Sabbath because of Jewish law and not do anything about it. So all day Saturday, they're restless, they're waiting. Saturday night, they're probably sleepless. Why is she at the tomb in the dark? Because where else would you be? Where else would you go when a loved one has just been put in the ground? But at the side of the grave. It's disturbing for other reasons. The resurrection has to wreck us. Before God can do any reorienting, rebuilding, any touching human work, the cross has already crushed us because of sin, but the resurrection has to wreck us. Look at what happens to Mary. She saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. You think her heart did not begin to beat faster? Her pulse quicken, her face flush, her skin begin to dampen with sweat as she wonders, what does this mean? And so she comes running to Simon Peter. There's urgency here. And the other disciple, the the one Jesus loved, this seems to be in the Gospel of John, a code word that's used by the author to indicate himself in humility. John, the youngest of the apostles, the baby brother of the bunch, and Peter. Mary Magdalene comes running to them. She's panting. She's out of breath. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Notice what she says. We don't know where they've put him. In this gospel, Mary alone is isolated as the woman who comes running with this news, but we know from the other gospels there was a few other ladies with her. Some have called this a contradiction, but look at what she says. We... Don't know where they've put him. She's speaking for this group of women. She's not really believing in resurrection, is she? His body's gone. I'm a wreck, guys. We don't know where they've put him. 
The resurrection has to wreck us. Now, what does this mean for you today? What does this mean for me? You don't stand next to the tomb. Maybe your pulse quickens as you read these stories, or especially if you watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ or another one of the great cinematic capturing of this event that's been made and remade in modern times. Maybe there are some moments in the quiet, in the dark, at a Good Friday service at the sunrise or just today, right now, in the worship when you feel something move. But what does it mean for you? The resurrection is going to wreck you before it fixes you. It's going to disturb your life. The implications here are beyond belief. If there really is a guy who came back from the dead in an incorruptible form, as he foretold, and so God has said yes to his life. God has said everything he taught is true. The miracles he performed were valid. By raising him from the dead, if God is saying this truly is the Son of God and the pattern for humanity, the one whom you're to follow, this can wreck your life. Because suddenly, someone else has been given God's stamp of approval and now you owe him everything. It'll wreck your life. It will crush you before it heals you. This is a human event. The resurrection of Jesus is a deeply human event. If for no other reason than it's a real body they take off the cross. At the end of day on Friday, it says that some men came to take his body down. Can you imagine being the one, probably the servant of Joseph of Arimathea, who were given the task to step up on some kind of stool to take the limp arms, maybe beginning to go into rigor, and to pull them off of the nails and to gently lower them to the ground, to wrap a real body in linen. That as you wrap it in the linen, it begin, the blood is soaking through. To carry the body to the tomb and lay it on the bench that's inside the tomb just across from the doorway where it will be anointed with oils and spices and left there for a year's time so that the soft tissue can decompose. And then the bones will be collected and put in an ossuary box and put in a little hole in the wall for permanent storage. Can you imagine handling the body? It is a human event. And Jesus when he's raised, is raised bodily. I don't have time to go through all the scriptures today in which Paul writes, and it was even prophesied in Isaiah and in Job and the Psalms, and all of the apostles agree with this, that Jesus was not merely a spirit after his resurrection. He could be touched, he ate food, and this is the hope that's in store for you and for me. It's a bodily event, it is a human event, and this has to touch our hearts. Before God can rebuild and reorient us from the the wrecking that is done when we realize the implication is I owe him everything. It has to touch our hearts. You see, the cross did this too. The cross crushed us because of sin, but fortified us because of love. And the tomb will do the same. 
it wrecks us, it's disturbing, but it must touch our hearts and fortify us in the hope that it brings that there really is life to come. Look at these verses. Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Of course you would if uh, Mary has come running and she's in a panic and she's a wreck and she says, we don't know where they've taken him. They begin going to the tomb and then it says both were running. Both were running. One Bible scholar has noted that there's more running in this event as recorded in John than in all the rest of the Gospels combined. Very rarely does it talk about people running. Very rarely are these kind of extra details offered. And yet now there is a sense of urgency their hearts are involved. It's a human event. Their hearts are now beating like Mary's. You see, her, her excitement has passed on to them. Uh, they're running to the tomb because of what it could mean. Has he been stolen? What about those wild things that he said? Could some of those be true? They are running to the tomb. And I just love this next part. And I want you to see how deeply human it is. They were running. But John who's authoring the gospel, writes these words. But the other disciple outran Peter. Now that's kind of funny, isn't it? And the longer you think about it, the more funny it is and the more human it is. That these were two men who were like brothers. Not biologically, but because of three and a half years of working together with Jesus. They were co-workers, co-laborers for the kingdom of God. They had been hoping together that the kingdom of God was really coming and that Jesus was really the Messiah and they'd been pouring out everything into it. Jesus had wrecked them. He had pulled them away from their uh, work, from their fishing. He had pulled them away from their homes. And they had poured everything in together. So they were closely bound together. And Peter, as one of the older big brothers of the group of 12 disciples, is always getting the first say. Well, John writes his gospel at the end after Peter already gave his gospel to Mark. And a couple decades later, John goes, Peter always got the first word, but I get the last word. I beat him to the tomb that morning. I was younger. I was stronger. I was touched. I was running. He ribs him just a little bit. It's a funny thing about coworkers. How stress can make them say funny things and remember funny things. Watch this short video of some coworkers dealing with stress together.
You guys can go ahead to that next slide if you would. You know what happened? John, the five minutes radar was down. It produced a tornado. I think John is probably going to want to go ahead and put his resume on LinkedIn, you know. Okay, so why am I showing you this? I, I'm trying to draw you into a text of Scripture so that you can see when, when people remember these details, when people have these little rubs as coworkers, and there's a little bit of uh, friction that turns into friendly rivalry between them, and when 20 years or so later, a guy is writing the most important document about the most important event that will ever be recorded in history. And he'll say at the end of this chapter and the end of chapter 21, there was more to write. We had stories about Jesus. We had signs about Jesus, things, miracles he did. The whole world couldn't contain all the books if we wrote everything that Jesus did. Why, when you're writing this important of a document, do you elbow the guy that was next to you for three and a half years and say, but I outran him? It's because this was a human moment in which real people had real memories. And I'm saying this to you today because I know some of you think this is a myth. Some of you think that this is something that got made up later, that John and Peter were early powerful leaders of some kind who thought they could make some money off of selling this story and convincing people to come to church and give their tithes or whatever. It was not that to them. They saw with their eyes. They touched with their hands. They heard with their ears. They tasted the fish that Jesus cooked for them on the beach a few days later. For them, these were real memories Real life, real investment, human life. It was touching to them. And they carried their whole selves in this memory. Both their friendly rivalries and their desperate running. When John reached the tomb, he looked in and he saw strips of linen lying there. They were told by Mary... Maybe this was a human accident. Maybe somebody came and stole his body and it really is a merely human event and not a resurrection event at all. Maybe somebody stole him. But I want to ask you a question. If you're going around in the middle of the dark robbing graves of their bodies, are you going to take the time to unwrap that thing before you walk off with it? They look in and they see the linen and something begins to rise inside of them. Something touching, something that will give them hope. Look at the next verse. Simon Peter came along behind John and he, as always, goes straight into the tomb. So bold. And he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. This was like a napkin they would put over the face. And John records... The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. This means that when the linen was unraveled from the body and it was put in this pile on the floor, someone took care to set the face cloth separate and apart and not to just throw it into the pile with everything else. The Greek word here, and I don't know why the NIV has chosen to leave this out, but if you look in the ESV or some other translation, you'll see it says this, the face cloth was folded in its place. You understand 
Um, parents, you're going to love this. That means Jesus, coming out of the grave, made his bed that morning. <laughs> he folded it and set it in its place. This wasn't a robbery. And so it's a reorienting event. It's a disturbing event that wrecks. It's a human event that touches, but it's a reorienting event that has to rebuild us brick by brick from the inside out, and the apostles are beginning to experience the rebuilding. They're seeing the evidence in front of their own eyes now, two co-workers and friends who had friendly rivalries and real memories, and they look at each other in this moment, and they realize the implications are he was not stolen. You know the song that we sometimes sing? We're going to sing it in a minute. I come broken. What's the next line? I come broken to be healed. You see, the tomb will wreck and crush us. It will touch our hearts, but in reorienting us to Jesus, it has hope for our healing. Look at this verse. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is John, also went inside. The hope had been rising in him. He realized it wasn't a robbery. He saw the evidence on the ground. He saw and believed. Some people think the word belief or the word faith means that there's no evidence and you just make this leap through the dark to God. That is not so. You're reading first-hand account evidence of a real resurrection in the first century. And John, the apostle who wrote this book, says, I went in, I saw, and I believed. And belief does not mean he just got the facts in order. Ah, I finally understand the scriptures mean that he had to be raised from the dead, and this is the true climactic event of all history. Look at the paragraph. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This means his faith was not just holding facts in his mind. He saw and he believed that what has happened here today is going to wreck me and it touches me and it's going to rebuild and reorient my life so that I will never be the same after today as I was before today. Oh, if this is true and he's really the stamped and approved Lord of the universe by God, the first resurrected human, the first fruits of what to come, and we'll all be like him, then he's the only one that I can ever turn to for hope. He's the one to whom I owe my allegiance. And if you're listening, listen to this word. Allegiance is what faith in Jesus Christ means. He doesn't understand all the facts. The disciples went back to where they were staying to think it over, to puzzle it out. But faith has already sprung to life in John because he knows I'm with that guy. This final verse, maybe this is for you today. Maybe this is for you that have kind of forgotten how much this really mattered to you or you've never given it serious thought. John, wrapping this gospel up, just a few verses from the ones we were reading, says, Jesus performed all these other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. That you may believe. And that does not mean for you, the implication here is not just that you get the facts right and you know the story, but that you believe the event and that you understand the implication is 
If this is true, and the evidence most certainly points that way, you owe him everything, your whole heart. He's got your future in his hands. He's got resurrection power to offer. He's got life, an empty tomb that can defeat all the threats and all the false promises the world might throw at you. These are written that you may believe that he's the Messiah. It's a word that means anointed or king. You don't just believe that he rose. You believe that because he rose, he is Messiah, king. You believe that because he rose, he is the son of God, It's a Davidic term from the Old Testament that means the person who God made king in Israel and who would fulfill the promises of David in history. You believe not just that he's alive, but that he's alive and reigning. This is what it means to believe in resurrection. Today, if we can pray with or for you, share the hope of Jesus' resurrection with you personally, baptize you into the name of Jesus Christ so that you can reenact his death and his resurrection through the waters of baptism. If we could have a cup of coffee with you this week and reason together about why we believe in this Jesus, please don't leave without failing to talk to us. We'll have elders in the front and the back to meet with you. I'll be here. I'll be here afterwards. We would love to meet you. Let's stand together Let's proclaim this truth aloud one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed.